Before we begin tonight, we want to send our thoughts and aloha to the family and loved ones of Sergeant First Class Raymond R. Transfiguracion from Waikoloa on the Big Island, who was killed by an IED in Helmand Province, Afghanistan earlier this week. He was 36 years old, one of six brothers, and leaves behind a wife and two young children. Transfiguracion was born in Sarat Ilocos Norte in the Philippines on May 20th, 1982, and he enlisted as a motor transport operator in the Hawaii National Guard on July 25th, 2001. So, two points. Immigrants continue to be the backbone of this nation, and the haters need to recognize that. And two, let's end this stupid, pointless forever war, because soon, President Trump will be sending kids to Afghanistan who weren't even alive on 9-11. So, rest in peace, Sergeant, and let's try to do better by our men and women in uniform, by bringing them home. Howley. I'm Leilani Poli Ahu, Ahui Ho. This episode of Blue Hawaii Podcast is brought to you by Homebrew in Paradise. Homebrew in Paradise, your one-stop shop for all your beer, wine, cider, and fermented food making needs. Located at 740 Mo'ova Street in Kalihikai. Can't go wrong if you go in there and ask for a starter kit and recipes. And oh, if you do, you get 10% off. 10%. Just mention the Blue Hawaii podcast to do that. 740 Mo'ova Street in Kalihikai. Homebrew in Paradise. Welcome to Blue Hawaii Podcast. I'm Ryan Little. I'm Josh Michaels. And we are back. It's been a while since we have talked with everybody. Uh, we've been releasing a lot of interviews last week. Thanks for everybody's favorable, kind words about Woo. the path to the primary series. Um, it was a real pain to release them. <laughs> shout, so, out, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out to Josh Cox. As always. The the third pillar of the stool, the man behind the mask. And the mask? The, the music. The man, the, the man, the behind the Mac. The oh, I like that. Yeah, the man well, behind the Mac. Well, he works on a Windows. Oh, he does. Yeah, uh, but he also he seems too cool and trendy for. Uh, he seems I don't know. But we're also all poor, uh, and Windows computers are much cheaper. He's I, actually that's why I have fun one. fact. He's yeah. working on a Windows computer uh, that belonged to my grandmother that she bought brand new in the year of our Lord two thousand and two. So everything that you guys hear right now is done on a computer that is old enough to drive a car. Do you think in 2002, we'd still be in Afghanistan in 2018? I think in 2002, I was really hoping we'd be in Afghanistan in 2018. <laughs> just just teach conquer. all those people a lesson. <laughs> Josh, thank you. Uh, to everybody listening, get at him on Instagram if you wanna follow him. It's at J-S-H-T-Cox, C-O-X. Uh, he's on IG. Find him, follow him. He's really fun to follow. Super funny guy, handsome as could be and just a great person. So before we get into it, all things August 11th, the primary day, which is effectively the the big Super Bowl, big you know, the end all and be all in Hawaii politics is Democratic primary, usually. We're gonna do a little quick news banter because it's been a real long time since we've sat down in the basement together and we, we missed each other and we missed you. And uh, we're currently not, you know, assuming you think we're gonna talk about Donald Trump, uh, we're not paying any attention to Omarosa. You shouldn't be either. And even if Donald Trump did say the N-word on tape, parentheses, he definitely did. He definitely did. It will not change a damn thing. Everybody uh, knew his, he was racist. Yeah. His approval rating will go up. Uh, and Charlie Kirk will tweet, Obama said it to Mark Maron. Why can't Trump? And that obnoxious, uh, qu you know, the emoji where it pretends to be like th deep in thought, like hold, like stroking its chin. I can see it because you have it in our show notes I, right now. And you're doing your best job to describe it. I, and you did a good job. I despise that emoji 
when used in that context. But, you know, Democrats are literally racist. Yeah, absolutely. They always have been, um, right? So the big thing, uh, listeners, you may not know this about us, especially if you only know us by our beautiful voices and not our beautiful faces. Mm. Um, we are what some most uh, residents of Hawaii would call... Hopelessly white. Hopelessly white. And speaking of hopelessly white, uh, a small Chicago eatery made the news. Um, you, everybody has, Everybody knows what's happening. We do not have to recap it. Basically, uh, Aloha Poke Co. decided it was going to trademark the term Aloha Poke. Mm. The ha- hashtag, the Howleys are at it again. The best meme I've ever created personally. Um, they it's were, done quite well on yeah, Twitter. People are marching in Chicago, uh, organized by uh, Native Hawaiian community leaders and the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Um, and we'll see what happens, <laughs> I guess. Screw those guys. Yeah. Screw those guys. Like, the, you know how, like... And you can relate, to, you can, you know, you can relate to this. Like, it's hard to be a good Howley, man. We're trying our best. Yeah. And. <laughs> Gotta work twice as hard to be half as good, you man. You know, and somebody like this goes on and, you know. We were, we had a good thing going. giving us a bad rap. Uh, well, to make the whole thing even more complicated, there's a really good take from a friend of the show, Mike Dunford, uh, slash general counsel at the show. Another another hopelessly white person. Oh yeah, he's, he's whiter than us. Yeah. Um, he had a really interesting thread on Twitter where he broke down, uh, not from a morality standpoint because everybody understands that Aloha Poke is stupid, um, but from a legal standpoint, how it, it points to the need for um, for indigenous people and people who have a vested interest in maintaining a certain um, cultural um, propriety over terms or yeah. over ideas and have to figure out ways to be better invested in the IP system because they've been well, they've been you know systematically disenfranchised, disenfranchised. And disempowered. Yeah. I mean, look at Maui from Moana, like he, which Mike also had a really hot take on when that came out. He's been on this on this beat a long time. Um, they just took a character. Or to they turned a you know a sacred a, Hawaiian, a sacred Hawaiian demigod into a Disney character, yeah. Without anybody really batting an eyelash outside of a few indigenous peoples, um, so it all speaks to a broader struggle. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, screw those guys. Perfect. Well said. Speaking of screw those guys, unite the right to electric Nazi boogaloo. I like it. So. Uh, Basically, because, you know, people are onto their game and have been making it, you know, not safe to be a Nazi in public or like, you, you know, uh, because counter protesters and people have been doing a great job of showing up and letting it known that that sort of, you know, crap and poisonous, toxic views won't be welcome in their town. Um, only about 20 to 25 people actually showed up for the protest. Excuse me, 20 to 25 Nazis actually showed up for the protest. And I saw an interview with Stephen Colbert and he... Uh, shared a joke that didn't make it into his monologue that night um but we'll share it now normally when two dozen white nationalists show up in dc we just call it a cabinet meeting oh um and we recommend uh on pbs and frontline they just put out a documentary featuring some excellent journalism from ProPublica, basically tracking everything that's happened in this country on the extreme right um before during and after the original charlottesville incident uh and where and where we're going today it's called documenting hate Part one of a multi-part series just dropped. It's on their Facebook page. It's online. It's on the PBS app. Um, I'm sure they're showing it over and over again. Please check it out. 
And speaking of uh, people who are, quote, in our opinion, end quote, Nazis, uh, remember a our very first episode, we told you about a fun little group called the Hawaii Proud Boys. Our on-again, off-again BFFs. And then they sent us a cease and desist letter. and th- Oh, excuse me. They threatened to send us. They, did, they couldn't even, they didn't even have the common courtesy to draft a letter and send it. It just makes me feel like I am less than. Yeah. Like, like I didn't criticize them hard enough. No, if you, like, if you really think, uh, I am a corrosive influence and, you know, on the politics, media, At banking, culture, Hollywood. To draft yeah, a cease and through, desist letter. Coward. Um, anyway, the Proud Boys, uh, national leadership, their big boy superstar, uh, Gavin McInnes, and a bunch of their local, national, regional chapters, all their Twitter pages were banned. So Alex Jones couldn't get banned, but the Proud Boys did. Not sure how that happens. You know. Not sure how that happens. Let's, uh, well, the less said about that, the better. Also, the Pope is visiting Lithuania. Normally, this wouldn't be newsworthy, but according to the AP, tourism officials in Lithuania's capital are coming under fire from the Catholic Church for a highly sexualized advertising campaign to promote the city as Pope Francis prepares to visit the country next month. The campaign features a woman lying on what looks like a bedsheet printed with a map of Europe, her hand gripping Lithuania in a way that suggests sexual pleasure. The text above her reads, Vilnius the g-spot of europe and nobody knows where it is but when you find it it's amazing oh i get it lithuanian prime minister saulius skvernilius nailed it nailed it said he does not find the campaign set to be launched thursday in london and berlin offensive to standards of public decency but acknowledged its timing was quote rather weird and that's all we have to say about that <laughs> yeah whoever the pr firm is on that Kudos. Well, okay. We um, I have notes here uh, to talk about QAnon, uh, but I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's, it's, we're gonna skip that. I mean, uh, like I have an idea. Right, it's like, crazy. It's uh, just like a right wing. Uh, Jim Jordan is running for House Speaker despite <laughs> being a credibly accused uh, accomplice, accomplice cover up, willing willing cover up accessory. Yeah, uh, in rampant sexual abuse at the Ohio State Wrestling Program. Like tons of sexual. More abuse. on that later. Um, speaking of rampant sexual abuse and institutional cover up, the Catholic Church. Uh, Apparently, there basically news broke today. A ring of maybe three hundred predator priests who were covered up at all levels did crimes all over Pennsylvania. Assaulted over a thousand yeah. young boys. And uh, people were saying on Twitter, "This, you know, remember you remember the movie? Do you see the movie Spotlight about, like, about everything it. everything in Boston when this sure. came out? Huge cover up citywide. You know, rocked a very you know a very Catholic city to its knees. Basically, yeah. uh, they said, you know, this is statewide. This makes Boston look like nothing. And if you think about this, like." This is possibly the story of more than one place in the country. But sure. so we'll, we'll be following the story as it goes. Um, and after, okay, after just two months, uh, Tom Perez proposed ending the DNC's ban on taking fossil fuel money. And we were all set to skewer him and demand Keith Ellison take charge. Uh, and then some interesting news broke. Uh, and by interesting, I mean horrifying. Um, you know, Keith Ellison thinks it's okay to beat the shit out of women. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly, Fair. we'll be following um, some, you know, some very vicious allegations of abuse came out about Keith Ellison. Um, lots of, you know, not to, let's just, again, this is too important of a story to try to do so quick right now. Um, but we'll see, how, we'll see the process play out. Yeah, he was just accused of beating multiple women yeah. over a long period of time. Uh, so for those of us who are consider themselves progressive and uh, were sort of 
pissed off at Obama for not pushing harder for Keith Ellison. There's seems like now there's probably a reason why. <laughs> so screw you, Tom Perez, for thinking it's okay to take money from oil companies as our islands slowly recede into the ocean. You know what? I, my, my guess is the secret Muslim didn't trust the real Muslim. All right. And the biggest news since bum, we've bum, been gone. Bum, they really turned on their galaxy brains for this bum, one. Space. So, Mike Pence uh, gave a very riveting speech announcing Space Force is on. Uh, We're going to space. We're going to kill some bad dudes. Uh, Actually, sorry to break it to you. The Air Force already has jurisdiction over space. One of their slogans is literally air, space, and cyberspace. Uh, Astronaut Mark Kelly said that this move is like taking the submarines away from the Navy and starting the, quote, undersea force. Um, So anyway, this is dumb. It's basically uh, a scheme to, one, keep all of the MAGA folks riled up at this exciting new adventure and look at their big, brave president doing cool things. Um, They even sent out, through his Donald Trump private campaign fundraising email list, a poll selecting asking... Uh, readers to select what their preferred logo for the space force would be which you know doesn't seem quite in line with you know the way things are done in the federal government uh and space force was a catchier name than slush fund for raytheon and lockheed martin which is basically what it actually is um any democrat who votes to fund space force create space force even take the idea of space force seriously uh, should be hounded out of office yeah i mean how how can you justify starting an entire new branch of the military when flint michigan doesn't have clean water yeah we can't afford we can't afford student loan forgiveness or single-payer health care or yeah we can't afford to fund social security or make you know chip payments for children's health care but space force yeah we got it in space no one can hear you scream but after this, we'll be screaming about the Hawaii primary election. Stay tuned. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. And we're back. Welcome back. Let's talk about the Hawaii primaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. politics. The biggest story. Main event. Incumbent governor David Ige, friend of the show, alum of the show, check out his episode, held off challenger representative Colleen Hanabusa 50 to 43 percent also friend of the show alumni of the show check out her episode love her yeah she was great we love them both we We really do this was a this was a tough one super Um, tough the essentially uh the thoughts here yeah the missile crisis was bad um but because of the neighbor island disasters you know the flooding on Kauai and then the eruptions on the big island uh, Governor Ike was able to rehabilitate his image which is crazy because you know representative Hanabusa ran for senate Back in 2015? 14. Back in 2014, uh, she had a hurricane that hit the big island. Same, yeah. Hit Puna that a lot of people blame for her loss to now junior Senator Brian Schatz. Yeah. Um, Senior senior or junior? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Senator Brian Schatz. The weather just doesn't want her to be in higher office. It was looking, before the hurricane passed south, it was looking like a hurricane was about to hit Puna on election day. Oh, yeah. Which would have been just... That would have been too much cosmic fate. It would have been too. It would have been too crazy. Um, essentially, and yeah, and the problem, you know, those things sort of cancel each other out. And when it came down to platform, they agreed on too much. They there agreed wasn't on too a lot much to differentiate them. Yeah, they did. Um, it was interesting. You know, it's hard to say Governor Ige is like rah rah hard left progressive, but 
he was getting the youth energy, the the progressive vote, the environmental vote. He definitely presented very well on yeah. environmental issues. I mean, if you listen to our episode, he spoke quickly. Uh, he spoke very knowledgeably about everything having to do with sustainability and climate change. Um, one issue that I thought Hanabusa could have, you know, separated herself and created a little bit of uniqueness in her position sure. would have been uh, the issue of cannabis, which Ige took a really, really conservative position on, in my opinion. Um, and she came out for it in, you know, the last week or two of the campaign. But I mean, we gave her the opportunity to do it way back in what April and nothing happened. Yeah, she, you know, she had a, she had to play the game. She had as a very, well. she had a very, you know, as she does, a pragmatic, wonky That's answer right. about how legislatively it would work and et cetera. And yep. um, not to, she's not an to incredibly say, competent woman. Not to say that cannabis is the only thing that young voters care about. No, it just would have been one thing to to throw out there. I mean, 190 million per year in additional funds for the for the Hawaii economy would have been a nice a nice talking point. <laughs> she's a wonderful woman, and she would have been a fantastic governor. Um, I think we're in competent hands with Ige. Uh, and I'm honestly happy that that fight is over now. Yeah. Like I said, uh, we like them both. They both have some major flaws, but I think, you know, ultimately... Nobody's uh, perfect. Yeah. And we... Well, well before we talk about uh, the general and their, and the Repu- their Repu- and Ige's Republican opponent, let's talk about the LG race. So well-funded Senator Josh Green holds off Senator Jill Tokuda. A million dollars spent on yeah, Josh Green's behalf. 30% to 28. He was blowing it up, and then she closed the gap late, but those carpenters pushed him over the edge with $1 million check, basically to stick it to Senator Takuda, Senator Takuda for her criticism of the rail project when she was in uh, office. Um, essentially, having all that money, uh, Senator Green had the airwaves to himself pretty much for the first two or three months you know every time i went on hulu or youtube uh there was he was there and you know good dynamic vibrant commercials because you don't pay for hulu premium nah man it's worth it it's man. hard it's hard out there dude it's worth it that's the best like we pay, upcharge you'll ever spend I, it's, it's a psychological thing because like i'm paying for some like i just like well i'm saving you know i'm paying for this i'm paying for that I'm you're paying, paying for, for convenience man you're paying for your time. Okay. We'll talk about it we'll later. We'll talk about it after. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, after that, uh, Bernard Carvalho, third. Uh, Kim Koko Iwamoto, fourth. Willis Barrow, fifth. Uh, the Democrat Unity Breakfast, uh, Senator Green, now Lieutenant Governor, Democratic nominee Green, uh, tried out his, you know, debut, his foray into stand-up, and he may want to stick to practicing emergency medicine. Um, I'll quote Chad Blair writing in Civil Beat. Of primary opponent Kim Koko Iwamoto, who is transgender, Green said he, quote, tried to learn to walk in her shoes, but that didn't work naturally for me, end quote. Read the room. Of opponent Willis Sparrow, he expressed hope that he and his fellow state senator, who has supported medical marijuana and has predicted that recreational use will soon be legalized in Hawaii. Weren't we just talking about that? Okay, either way. Quote, would do a doobie together sometime shortly, end quote. So, you know what, Josh Green? You know Senator Green? You're not a very funny man. No, but... You know what, bro? You're willing to take a swing. Yeah. Anyway, Governor Ige and Lieutenant Governor Green will take on GOP State Representative Andrea Tupola in the governor's race this November. Essentially, she's super popular. She'll have a lot of people fired up to vote for her. She's extremely likable. And she definitely represents a change in the status quo. But she still supports President Trump. Hard. And that's all all Ige is going to have to do. 
at the commercials, Trump, her and Trump, at the debate. Oh, you make a lot of great points, Representative. Did you vote for Donald Trump? Do you still support Donald That's Trump? Exactly That's right. it. Nail in the coffin. Uh, the Democratic Governors Association Executive Director, Elizabeth Pearson, said in a press release on Sunday, Rep Tupola proudly took selfies with President Trump and said that, quote, we can mirror his policies in the Hawaii. So the national attack has already started. The state attack will already start. Uh, and when I say attack, I don't say it like it's a bad thing because that's a perfectly valid line of attack. Because if you still if think, you're gonna if you think Donald Trump's vision, over anything, yeah, attack over Trump's would, entire existence. But it's not all as peaceful and harmonious over on the Republican side of the ticket. Uh, Andrea Tupola's this story just broken Hawaii news now. Andrea Tupola's running mate says the Republican candidate for governor should apologize for her record in the state legislature. The winner of the primary to run as her lieutenant governor, Marissa Kearns of Marissa Kearns Stop Rail Now fame. Uh, the worst political signs that I've ever seen in my entire you life. You can't read what it says until you're like three feet away, right? Well, and it's got a big stop sign on it. So it looks like what the sign says is stop Marissa Kearns, which is a perfectly valid thing to want to do. I have a feeling, I have a feeling Andrea Tupola wished somebody would have. Um, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> is urging Tupola to say she's sorry about voting with the Democratic majority on some issues. As House Minority Leader, Tupola was frequently criticized by conservative Republicans for her voting record. Oh, you know, we talked to another former Republican House Minority Leader, Beth Fukumoto. I think she can relate to unfair criticism. Absolutely. Uh, Kearns added, I know we can fix Hawaii between me and her. Mm. Mm. I'm I'm very reassured. You're not going to fix it with your graphic design skills, I can tell you that. (laughs) Also, a rich white guy is going back to Congress, (laughs) y'all. Uh, Ed Case, multimillionaire and lobbyist for the Outrigger Corporation. Yes, the tourism industry, that that lovely, charming... Thing that takes of, care of everybody. Beacon of light and hope onto these islands that has done nothing but treat uh, its people well since In its inception. a devastating victory, Ed Case took 38.7% of the vote in Hawaii yep. uh, with Mr. Doug Chen coming in second with about a quarter. Human robot Donna Mercado Kim coming in at 18%. Uh, Kaniella, I didn't know I couldn't spend my money on that, Ing, coming in at 6.1%. And friend of the show, Beth Fukumoto at another 6.1%. And everybody's favorite, Ernie Martin, uh, bringing up the rear. <laughs> Ernie Martin. You know what? Of, I gotta say, I'm really just positioning for a run for mayor fame. I, I gotta say, like, you know, obviously, you know, he he didn't he didn't fare too well. A lot of people don't agree with his platform, but pretty much universally, like people who watched Ernie in action were just like, it's hard not to like him. Everybody likes yeah, Ernie because he's just like he's hanging out with like like hanging out with your really smart local uncle. Ernie's probably. I would say... Even if you totally vehemently disagree with him on sit-lie bans and military property tax exemption sure. and, a, and a host of other things that we can I get into. Feel like, uh, I feel like Ernie's probably the politician I've gotten the most comments about that we've interviewed. People yeah. are just like, I love that guy. I think people are, people just assume, like, you know, because he's like, he's kind of like gruff guy. Yeah. Like, you would assume, like, he's... He's just a straight up dude. uh, Well, Well, back to case. Yes, back to... A (sighs) self-described blue dog Democrat and tourism tourism industry executive. All those bad things. Uh, He said he wants to work closely with the existing delegation to help the state of Hawaii while also bridging the deepening partisan chasm in Washington. That'll work. Good luck. Yeah, uh, it worked really well when we did that last time. As Ed Case said, quote, we believe that we should sit down at tables like adults and try to talk things through and come up with good, solid solutions. Meanwhile, Charlie Kirk, the thought leader on the right, literally wears diapers as a form of protest. We believe we can do that. And we believe that what that is what most people in our country want. And that's what this is about. This is why policies 
that we actually want and will actually help people don't get passed. We elect millionaires who have no idea what the average person goes through to Congress so that they can vote on policies that affect you, also, the average what, person. What on earth are you trying to find? Have you seen what the Republicans in Washington are doing? He's like, maybe we don't. Maybe we don't ban all Muslims. Maybe we just ban Muslims from certain countries. If the, if the biggest issue is like, oh, we just need to work together better. Like, I, I, it's uh, not. That's not the biggest issue. <sighs> uh, well, so all of the CD, you know, as we said over and over again, uh, all of the CD1 candidates had at least one red flag. Uh, and most of the voting decisions we heard, people were sort of doing a lesser of evils thinking. Um, it became pretty clear after polling that somebody in the top three, you know, Ed, Doug, Donna, was going to win. Case was the heavy favorite, which, you know, 14 days before the deadline coming in and basically like dropping fat stacks of cash and like cleaning up. Dude just wrecked. It's just reflective wrecked of it. kind of how broken and how also but how heavily based on establishment, entrenchment, name recognition our politics is. Um, anyway, he became the heavy favorite quickly. Uh, Shin, you know, became the most likely alternative. And then it was a question of weighing, you know, Ed Case's red flags, conservative leaning, supported the Iraq war, tried to primary Senator Kaka, lobbyist for tourism industry against uh, Doug Chin's red flags, you know, lobbyist for private prisons, uh, you know, reputation as a narc. When you call yourself a career prosecutor for Congress, what I hear is narc, uh, form his former, you know, anti-gay religious comments, uh, the appearance of opportunism in all of his anti-Trump actions. P.S. Did we mention Hawaii officially dropped uh, the travel ban lawsuit against Trump after the election? <gasps> how? Like it was all politically motivated? You mean the guy that called a press conference to announce a lawsuit? <laughs> was he Gloria Steinem? Yeah. You know, well, that's good. I like that. That was a good one. Uh, that's a very urbane joke. Thank you. Um, you know, essentially what it boiled down to Tens of thousands of Hawaii voters have sent Ed Case to Congress before. They recognized his name and they were comfortable with doing it again. And that's just sort of how it works when 36.5% of your state votes. Um, talking about, you know, as you mentioned, former guests, friends of the show, Beth came fifth, uh, Ernie came sixth. We can't really take credit for a blue Hawaii bump. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but, you know, I think real quick, you know, Beth and, Beth and Ernie, shout out again to them. I think they'll both be fine. They'll land on their feet. We can't say too much right now, but uh, we're looking forward to working with Beth on some future projects. We think you guys will find it really exciting. And like we said, Ernie is running for mayor in two years, 100%. Put it in the bank. He'll land on his feet. We have so much more to talk about. We haven't gotten into local smaller races. We haven't gotten into the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. We haven't talked about the Connie Elephant in the room. That's such a good pun. Uh but we're going to save all this. We've got some great more stuff. Uh, this Saturday, we're sitting down with great friend of the show, uh, alum, episode three, one of our very first, like, sit down, get into it about Hawaii politics guests. Our boy, Alan Akau, Tough Gong, is going to be in the studio, and we'll be going through everything. Hardcore, that'll be the full-blown, full-blown, I don't know what. Discussion. The, the full-blown discussion. The deep dive. Yes. Perfect. That's exactly what we'll be doing, so stay tuned for that. But for now, we've got a very special interview with Dr. Akemi Glenn, who is a, as you will find out, a linguist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where we have a very interesting conversation about uh, race, language, some of the work she's doing in the community with her nonprofit, the Popolo Project, and uh, the nexus between culture, language, music, and indigenous peoples. 
and she'll be hosting uh, MacArthur Genius American Treasure uh, Documenter Scribe of what it means to be black in America and what it has meant to be black in America since America became America. Who's that man? That man is the G-O-A-T. Ta-Nehisi Coates is going to be here August 25th at uh, the Doris Duke Theater at the Honolulu Museum of Art. I've already got my tickets. You should get your tickets. Um, and I hope to see you there. Ladies and gentlemen, Blue White Podcast, please enjoy our interview with Akemi Glenn. Dr. Akemi Glenn. Blue Blue White. White. Welcome back to the Blue Hawaii Podcast. Okay, audience, strap in for this intro because we have a very, very accomplished and fascinating guest for you tonight. Dr. Akimi Glenn is a Honolulu-based scholar and culture worker. She holds an MA and PhD in linguistics from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, go Bows, and a BA in linguistics from New York University, go Violets? Violets, go Violets. Her research considers the interplay of space, geography, community, and language. Akimi's primary interests are in how indigenous peoples, refugees, captives, migrants, and other diasporic peoples in the Pacific and the Americas use language to construct, navigate, and politicize their identities. Akimi is also the founder and curator of the Popolo Project, a multimedia exploration of blackness in Hawaii and the larger Pacific. And she'll be hosting and moderating a conversation with Tanahasi Coates, you may have heard of him, at the Honolulu Museum of Arts Doris Duke Theater, Saturday, August 25th at 6 p.m. Tickets cost... Uh, 30 and $35. 30 and $35. Dr. Akimi Glenn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be with you two. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Well, thank you so much for joining us in the basement. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Would you mind just for our listeners telling us a little bit of you know your story? Sure. Um, so people often ask me how I got involved in linguistics and specifically in indigenous language revitalization and this work that we're doing now with the Popola Project. And when I think about it, it all kind of comes back to how I came to be, my genealogy and my kind of history. So uh, my parents are from North Carolina and I'm a military brat. So I grew up a whole bunch of places, but mostly in the South. Um, I grew up in Virginia, which is a very interesting part of the South. It's mm-hmm. the place that thinks it invented the rest of the South. Yeah. I actually grew up near the, the birthplace and hometown of George Washington. Uh, it's mother of presidents. So a lot of the ideas that we have about not only what it means to be um, Native American or Native identities, um, but also what it means to be American comes from the culture that kind of developed in Virginia over the last 400 years or so. So I grew up, um, my mom is uh, part American Indian. She's um, pretty involved with her tribal community in Eastern North Carolina. So I grew up with this idea and, and this notion of myself as a, as a mixed race person um, who, was, who was black and who was Native American, part Chinese, Scots-Irish, um, growing up in this place where I was kind of immersed in all of those cultures and all the features that kind of come together. But I also grew up in a place that was marked with Native names. So the river that ran through my town is called the Rappahannock. I grew up near the Potomac, Quantico, all those places. And as a young person became really curious about that and really curious about how language was imprinted in the land. And in some ways, how late, how language was kind of latent in the land. It was these these pieces, these kind of clues that were left over the last 400 years of colonization. So when I got a chance to go to college in New York City, um, language was something that had kind of always been important to me, especially moving around, um, growing up in a kind of multilingual environment. Yeah. I spoke Japanese as a kid, you know. Wow. Um, my parents Japanese was spoken in your house. Yeah, from time to time. Interesting. Yeah. Who was it that was speaking Japanese? Well, my dad spoke Japanese. Um, my dad lived there for for a while before I was born, which is how I got my name, Akemi, which is a, a pretty common Japanese name. 
Um, and I grew up with the you know military folks around, but also a lot of immigrant folks around. My neighbors across the street spoke Farsi, so I grew up learning a little bit of Farsi. Wow. Um, we had a French exchange student, so the the experience of crossing cultures was always something that that was just very salient in my life as a kid and as an adult and as a college student. I just got really interested in in ways to analyze that and ways to kind of model what that meant and how we could use those experiences to kind of understand the larger world. And um, you came out before you came out here to go to UH. Had you ever been out here before, or? I uh, no, I had been out here a couple of times. So my my Hawaii story is that because I was a military brat, I grew up with tons of people who are from Hawaii. My best friend in middle school was from Waianae. Um, I grew up with tons of Samoan and Chamorro and Filipino kids who had come through here, especially through the Marine Corps. And so Hawaii was always just a part of my my world. And so when I went to college in New York, somehow I ended up hanging out with a lot of Hawaii kids. Cool. And um, my my partner at the time um, left New York City and came here to study architecture and do his doctorate here. And so we had kind of like a long distance relationship for a couple of years. And it came out and it felt so familiar and yeah. so much like home and decided to stay. So I didn't come out here to go to grad school, but I came out here to kind of be here. And that kind of turned into this life that I'm leading now. Well, speaking of that, I mean, it's led you to create the Popolo Project. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, the Popolo Project is kind of a, we're, we're still kind of in startup mode sure. um, as, as organizations go. Um, we've been around for a couple of years, and what we're really doing is trying to figure out, it's mostly asking questions rather than having an agenda. The question is, what does it mean to be black in Hawaii and in the Pacific? And the, that initial question came from a lot of my experiences and the experiences of some friends of mine here, where um, you know black folks, as, as people self-identify, are about 2 to 3% of the population here in Hawaii, which is, a, which is pretty small, yeah. all in all. Um, but there's a lot of visibility of black people. There are a lot of um, non-resident black people who mm-hmm. live here who are in the military, um, you know, people coming through as tourists. But even more importantly, there's a lot of representation of black culture here and everywhere because of the history of colonization and, and occupation here in Hawaii. So you end up with a really interesting cultural space where there are not a lot of people of African descent or people who are raced as black who yeah, living but, here. Because like mainland it's 13 percent right yeah the average nationally so it's like one sixth as many black people yeah like i remember when i moved to here from alabama because i had never come to hawaii i was like where is everybody (laughs) right yeah and everybody you know for the most part is in the military so that's what people often associate with blackness so when i first moved here Everywhere I went, people were like, oh, are you in the military? I, I was like, no, are you in the military? My brother, who has like a full beard and totally doesn't look like he's in the military, gets it all the time. Sure. Um, so there's also this really interesting kind of cultural space where because the local community is also feeling a lot of pressure from the military presence here, yeah. there are lots of negative associations in addition to just kind of your, your re- regular kind of garden variety anti-black sentiments that get associated with black bodies here because of our perceived association with the military. So um, for myself, you know, I, I lived here for many years and was trying to figure out how to position myself as a black person who's also very interested in um, the experience of the indigenous people here and seeing a lot of connections that seemed very obvious to me, but realizing that most folks that I was encountering only had a notion of me as a black person through media representations. And so they would say all kinds of crazy stuff to me about what they perceived to be my culture or my values. And what I realized um, was that a lot of folks in Hawaii just did not have connections to 
their black friends and neighbors as black people. Mm-hmm. So often if they, they did, have, did have black friends, neighbors, or family members, um, those people are often mixed race, sure. and um, they would relate to them through their non-black part. So the Popolo Project started with just a wish to um, seek out people's stories, people who, who live who here. Who co-founded it with you? It was just me to okay. start, um, and it really was me just calling up all of the black people I knew and saying, hey, will you talk story with me? Recording it, transcribing it. But over the last year, we've actually become an organization. So I have a wonderful board of four people. We have a, a small staff that actually produces our events, um, does some fundraising and that kind of thing. And so really what we're interested in is um, having local representations of blackness and kind of pushing the boundaries of what we think blackness is, not only for people of African descent, but also thinking about how historically and contemporary, contemporaneously uh, blackness has been applied to native Pacific Islanders, mm-hmm. like Hawaiians, Melanesians, and other people too. So I went to you guys' uh, I think it was at Mark's Garage, you had an art show, I believe, for mm-hmm. a uh, female black artist. And it was like really phenomenal. Um, she got up there and like explained like every single piece that she had done. And like, I remember the, the like, there was just like this din of the crowd kind of talking. This was, I guess, because it, it was during Black History Month, yeah. right? Black and History Month. And I remember like pictures, yeah. when she would speak, like you could tell that the desire to understand and relate to this person was so strong because the crowd would just go silent in mm. this room full of people. And it was like hotter than a thousand hells. <laughs> and like everybody was just silent and dripping sweat and just listening like with rapt attention. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I also, uh, I didn't get to go, but my wife went to the Juneteenth celebration, mm-hmm. which is, um, for those of you listening at home, it's uh, celebrating emancipation, right? And yeah. and like the number of people that turned out was really impressive for black people representing 2% of our population here in Hawaii. Like you can tell the desire to learn more is so strong because there's just, like you said, the culture is all media. There's no like you can't really interact with it right. on like a on a visceral level like mm-hmm. you can at you know a Juneteenth celebration or an art show or something yeah. like that. That's- yeah, and just about the art show, I think some of that that rapt attention is to the credit of the artist that was Nicole Wu, That's who um, it was. and she was also jointly exhibiting with her partner, her husband um, Feijao Milligan. And they're both really amazing artists who started off, um, Feijao is from St. Croix and Nicole is from Brooklyn. So one of the other things that we're really intentional about is that um, we are intentional about saying black versus African-American and talking about being of African descent versus African-American. One, because Hawaii is not America. And the other reality is that there are a lot of black people here who are not American. There are a lot of people who are from the Caribbean and Brazil and yeah. Africa and elsewhere. Worldwide diaspora. Yeah, yeah I, I heard that one time. I, I, I heard that argument made. So I, I went to law school at the University of Hawaii, which is like the most liberal law school in the country. And I remember I, I got really chided for saying black. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like where I come from, like there may be Barbadians. They may be like Bahamian. They may be, may be from St. Croix. Like like they may be brazilian and if yeah. you call them african-american that's very offensive and people being like ah freaking southerners shut up yeah. but yeah like yeah yeah oh the southerner is going to tell us about how to treat black people okay great <laughs> i'm not going to say josh was one of those people that that got onto me for it but 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I grew up in the South and, um, you know, honestly, I, I don't know any black people personally that identify as African American. Yeah. yeah. Um, they mostly identify as black. And I think that goes to the kind of complex history of how racial caste has developed in the U S yeah. where, yes, I'm of African descent. I feel very comfortable saying that, but, um, having African American as my kind of primary identifier for me erases all of the rest of my genealogy. Yeah. Whereas black actually in some kind of weird way allows me to kind of be all of those things at the same time. Speaking of uh, names and nomenclature, um, can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at the name of the Popolo project and what the, the word Popolo means to you? Yeah. Um, so the, the name question is one that we get all the time. I, I bet. And you read my mind. This is where we're going. <laughs> um, part of it is because uh, depending on who you talk to, the word Popolo yeah. is pejorative. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting. As a linguist, I'm super fascinated by that because if you look throughout the history of naming blackness, almost anything that you could ever call a black person at some point was pejorative. Yeah. Not because the word intrinsically is bad, but because of the way that our society has, like has labeled us. Exactly. Right. So, you know, 50 plus years ago, my grandparents would have been deeply offended by someone calling them black versus colored. Mm -hmm. And before then, something else, right? So um, there's that, that almost anything that black people are labeled at some point has a negative connotation. But for our for our project and for the name of our organization, it's really important to us to think about what a Hawaiian word means in this context. Yeah. So popolo is actually a plant that um, is a canoe plant. So Polynesians took it all across the Pacific. It grows everywhere that Polynesians went. It's a medicinal plant. It does produce a dark purple, almost black berry but it has an amazing range of uses. It was used for food, it was used for um, healing respiratory complaints. Um, I was just in New Zealand in, in January and meeting with some folks about the Popolo project and they were asking me, well, what's Popolo? And I started explaining it's this plant and they were like, oh, we totally have that, it's called Poroporo. And they started having these wonderful reminiscences about like going with their grandmother to the bush to cook this plant. So one of the reasons why we use that word is because it is endemic to the Pacific. It's a Pacific word. It also, in Hawaiian culture, does not have a negative connotation. Um, it was something that, that was valued um, and that was also seen as, as part of the natural environment here. And of course, the, the application to black people is something that's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. So um, I've done some linguistic research and there might be others out there who have a different perspective, but from what I've been able to tell, that word um, being used for black people uh, started around the time of World War II. Yeah. So before then, the missionaries encouraged Hawaiians to use a different word for black people, and that was nika, which was borrowed oh, from English, right? So yeah. you still see that actually quite a lot. There are, there are um, nika is used as a descriptor for dark colored things. Mm -hmm. There's a uwala nika, which is a dark purple sweet potato. Um, you still hear that quite a lot. And if you look in the Pukui Elbert Dictionary, there's a really interesting interest entry for that word. Um, so at the time that there are a lot of black GIs stationed here mm -hmm. in World War II, uh, it seems that people found that, you know, kind of obliquely referring to these people as Nika was yeah. probably not the best thing to do. Yeah. They probably got into a lot of fights. So we start to see around that time that Popolo was being used more frequently and it was kind of a kind of a euphemistic way of referring to people but for us and at, at the project it's really important that we use a hawaiian word and that we use a word that is grounded in the pacific as a way to decolonize the stigma 
that has been attached to it because popolo on its own is a is a beautiful plant that lives here and any negative connotation that's been attached to it comes from the imposition of white supremacy here in hawaii so that's super interesting because i uh, i remember around the time um when when Big Island Mayor Harry Kim got in trouble for his uh his, his referring to uh, black man in the back of the room as th- that colored guy over there, uh, Kumuhina mm-hmm. uh, had a, a piece in Civil Beat explaining like, yeah, it's exactly like you were saying, you know, like the it's a purely descriptive term in Hawaiian. The colonization, you know, we've imported white supremacy and like American centric white supremacy specifically. Um, but growing up, you know, my my mom was from the East Coast, but she's she's been here since the seventies and was like very involved with Hawaiian language at UH. And, but I, I heard the exact same thing. Like, no, do not say that. That is basically the exact same as the N-word. It means deadly nightshade, which is, I don't know where that came from. Is this, is, so it is a nightshade. The yeah, popolo so plant is. There's all yeah. sorts of, yeah. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. That's yeah. super interesting. Thank you. Speaking of popolo and, and blackness in Hawaii, I mean, from what you've experienced on the mainland, specifically in Virginia, which you say is the South, you know, where I'm from, we don't really consider Virginia the it's South. The home of the South. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's what they say, but... Uh, you guys think that's like the country club South? If for Like, for us, like, Virginia is like... It's just kind of like... It's like diet South. It's like South Zero. I don't know. I mean, did you see what happened in Charlottesville last year? I, I know. I know. That's I feel like, like they're definitely pretty, trying to earn back some of their uh, Southern points. It's the home of the Confederacy. It's where well, the capital actually, was. no. My hometown on the city seal says the uh, cradle of the confederacy i think everybody wants to be the cradle of the confederacy but richmond was the capital (laughs) montgomery was the first capital of the confederacy these guys all talking about like these snowflakes with their participation trophies and everything coming out with uh the confederate flag and the swastika like the two biggest loser flags of all time look man like we got our priorities back losers take what they can get but yeah so (laughs) being a, a black woman who has been all over but has roots in the south how do you see blackness differing in Hawaii from the mainland? One thing that I think is really striking, has been really striking for me here in Hawaii is that um, Hawaii often thinks about race and ethnicity as interchangeable. Mm-hmm. So, and, and often we talk about these things in terms that give us a set of characteristics for an individual. So you'll have a conversation with someone here and you'll, you know, I'm having trouble with somebody at work and they'll be like, what is he? Japanese? Oh yeah, that's yeah. how they are, right? Yeah. Um, part of that I think is is the close relationship that, that local culture seems to find in race and ethnicity and culture, right? Whereas um, in my experience coming from the South, it's a, it's a little bit different. It's stratified in a different way where race is very much caste-based, mm-hmm. right? So um, me being black, I'm not 100% Sub-Saharan African. Mm-hmm. I, think people probably can see that when they look at me but they can also tell that i have some african ancestry and because of that i'm black in the south whereas you know i know that i i know about my genealogy my my parents are both mixed race people in my family are multi-generationally mixed race and know their genealogies but it's not something that we talk about or really have any kind of public identity around because we're black Mm. and because my parents grew up in the segregated south where they it didn't matter that my dad was part chinese yeah when people are throwing <laughs> bricks through your window you don't yell hey actually i'm yeah, part chinese right yeah. it, and and also being part chinese is probably not going to help you yeah. right at that That's point true. um but here in hawaii um people i found in my case have been really eager to dissect me and yeah. and connect with parts of of my genealogy that are important to me but are also not kind of my primary identities right so um 
that's a big difference from how race and ethnicity works in the South uh, versus in Hawaii. And I think what that turns into in in kind of social spaces is people not always knowing how to interact with blackness. Um, So I've had this experience, I actually just had it this past weekend where someone introduced me to a group of people publicly as a Native American woman, which is not false, but um, I'm also obviously black. And she was like, oh, this Native American woman from North Carolina does language stuff. And I could see this kind of weird, like people were like doing the math in their head and trying to figure out like, how do we account for this person? Um, And I think in Hawaii, there's also a different kind of cultural space where you can, you have the option to represent yourself. So you might have Hawaiians who don't look Hawaiian to whoever, um, but as long as they can assert that identity, as long as they engage in cultural practices and are determined by their community to be authentically Hawaiian, they can be. That's a completely different racial reality, ethnic reality than what we have in the South. The other thing is like, you know, being black is such an interesting um, situation because we're t- we are really talking about a caste system. Yeah, we're yeah. talking about people who are all kind of glommed into one group who might not speak the same language, might not be from the same continent, they might not have any of the same cultural or religious practices. Really, the experience is phenotypical. You know, it's, exactly it's right, being yeah. assigned in that way. Yeah. And that's what's interesting also about the way that blackness is dealt with in the Pacific. So you have people like Melanesian Islanders and mm-hmm. Fiji and the Solomons who share some phenotypic characteristics Absolutely. with those of us from the African diaspora. And those people are raised black in the same way. And even here in Hawaii, um, sometimes are referred to as Popolo and have some similar experiences as people who come from the Americas do when they get here. It's really interesting that uh, that you, when you're bringing up the stuff about the South and sort of the, the caste-based system, because I think down South people do try to, I think people act as if there is room for genealogy but there really isn't. I mean, it's, you're either white or black, like, and I've talked about it on, on the show before, but, uh, my wife and I did 23 and me. And, um, I found out that like within, I mean, it's not even close in the last few generations, but like within like 300 years, somebody in my family was fully North African and somebody else was uh, fully native American. And like, it hit me in such a weird way because I realize that like, you know, I, I don't, I obviously there's, it's impossible to determine in what way, but like in some way like that same line of people that like I was at one point in my life, probably complicit or maybe even still complicit with oppressing are like, like my people in some way, like, but I was just the one that was fortunate enough to pass, you know right. what I mean? Well, that's the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it, it conscripts all of us. So even people of color who are, you know, oppressed by it also replicate it. And that's what I think is also really interesting about Hawaii and, and pushing on the anti-blackness that's here. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people who are the same complexion as me who are like, would do anything they could to distance themselves from blackness yeah. because of the negative association. So it's not something, I mean, in your situation, I think is really interesting um, because I'm white as shit. Okay, <laughs> I'll take you so at your I'll word. On that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. This is, to your point, that Hawaii is not the racial melting pot we tell ourselves we are. No, I mean, well, it's because we're dealing with humans, right? Yeah. So, like, no set of humans is perfect, and no set of humans who's been colonized and you know dispossessed of their land and had radical 
cultural shifts within a 200 year period is yeah. going to be perfect. And I don't know why people persist in that because we have an opportunity to be better when we're not perfect. It's comforting to lie to ourselves, I think. It is, but and it's also, to yeah, but it's also really interesting that the, that kind of trope of Hawaii as a racial paradise yeah. didn't come from nowhere. It really started happening in the early 1960s, around the time that we see a lot of racial unrest on the continent. Hawaii was just being introduced into the union as a state, right? And there was a lot of work being done, kind of propaganda work to bring Hawaii into the consciousness of Americans as part of America. And so at the same time, this is 1959, right? So at the same time that Hawaii is kind of being like stitched together with the rest of America, we have this massive social movement that is upending the entire structure of American society. And so these these folks who are doing this work of bringing Hawaii in and also trying to explain away the racial unrest are saying, look, here's a great place that's part of America, doesn't have any of these problems. And they actually set Hawaii up as a foil to the you know places like Detroit yeah. or LA or the South. So they played more of a, a political role to be like, do you think some of that was like, look at these people and like the implication is like, there aren't many black people there Absolutely. and look how great it is. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, it's interesting cause there's actually writing from the time period where um, the, I, I came across this op-ed from, I don't know, some columnist in Ohio or something. Sure. He's, he's never been to Hawaii, but he's writing about how great it is cause there are no black people here to flip cars and set them on fire. And you know, he's writing to this white audience saying, don't don't fret. There is a place in America where there where we're not going to be haunted by Negroes who actually want to be treated as humans, and it's interesting that that place is this place yeah. that is so filled with people of color. But it's also, you know, that whole line of rhetoric also drew on ideas about Asian folks mm -hmm. and also the inevitability of the the obsolescence of Native people here. Because he didn't talk about Hawaiians. He was talking about how docile Asian. Yeah plantation workers were i mean as the whole territory period was basically a white supremacist oligarchy running it and you know and to your point that different from now how they're not as explicit about it oh that's true yeah um no i mean and all a lot of the the dixiecrats who voted against the civil rights act voted against statehood for hawaii because you know do we need we don't need more non-white americans right but what's your thought on the current political push for uh what's the word civility like yeah why is it called political correctness when it's women people of color lgbt seeking the same treatment political correctness is destroying this country uh, why yeah everybody's so right. sensitive whenever it's white people all of a yeah. sudden it's how dare civility. you not let me uh, right. eat my fancy dinner on especially right. as a linguist i'm curious because yeah. that language is it's very, very deliberate yeah. political correctness. it seems it there's a lot of subliminal messaging oh there. for sure i mean there's all kinds of i mean that's what that's how these discourses are shaped, right? There's all kinds of dog whistles that people have going out there. Um, it's certainly not the first time that people have said that political correctness or that, that we need civility. I mean, that's exactly what we heard during the civil rights mm -hmm. movement. It My feels kind of like we're living in another civil rights movement. We are, movement. and we, we've, been move, we've been living in a slow-moving one, honestly, for the last 400 years. Yeah. It's just what we tend to focus on and, and the, these moments of eruption. But, you know, my mom... Um, lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is one oh, of the yeah. places where the, there was a lot of civil rights activity at the Woolworth mm -hmm. sit-in there. And that was exactly the rhetoric that was coming from people like Jesse Helms at the time, that, you know, we need to be civil, um, that, you know, we need to take things, even people who were kind of reform-minded were saying we need to take things slow, or we have to take the upper hand, or we need to be moral in ways that, that 
you know, our opponents are not. And that's, well, like, I, yeah. I saw an op-ed, like a clip from an op-ed, maybe 1962. That was like, uh, King's nonviolence is really just a cry for publicity. And like, I, I see that same thing now, like about, you know, D. Ray McKesson, yeah. about people like Patrice Cullors, who mm-hmm. you've, I believe, Popolo Project featured, what, last week, right? Yeah, Thursday. At mm-hmm. Doris Duke Theater. Like, that same argument, the same people now who are calling for civility and who are calling for, you know, just take it slow and let the states figure it out. And they're really just making more of it than it needs to be. That was the same argument yeah. that was used in 1960 mm-hmm. and probably 1860 and probably yeah. at one point 1660. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it's just, it seems like we're repeating ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's because I, I think it's because we haven't addressed the fundamental kind of the, 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 the real kind of DNA of not only American culture, but I, I do want to like make reference to this as an international thing. You know, this is something that um, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing these kinds of conversations everywhere around the world. Um, but we haven't addressed the fundamental issue. And that's why even though the times have changed and the, the forms have changed, maybe we say political correctness instead of, you know, being uppity or whatever. Communism. Right, communism, whatever. The, the DNA is still there, so it's still replicating itself. And we still have these frames where there are, we, we kind of make an appeal to law and order and this yeah. kind of strange idea that if it's written on paper it's been passed by legislature that means that it's morally sound and that we have no right to question it or to disrupt it and that's why it's playing out over and over again over these generations we talked about a few weeks ago actually uh when for the first time in what seems like decades evangelicals stood up against the gop uh in jeff sessions in particular for uh enforcing the family separation uh policy that the trump administration uh, his, you know, stood up for and um, recently backed down from. But, you know, he used still the... Still haven't found the kids, though. They still haven't found still them. Still haven't put them back I, We're never going to find those kids, Now they're incarcerating the whole family, too, yeah. right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, we'll just keep you all together in a cage. Yeah. But, you know, he uses the the Bible as a justification, which it was like, of course you're going to the same place that the segregationists went to and the slave owners went to before that and the loyalists went to in the American right. Revolution. You're going to the same thing that people always go to, which is one uh, taken out of context verse that you're using it as an absolutist mandate to run roughshod over the human rights of others. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that, you know, not to get into kind of impugning Christianity or missionization too much. But, the floor is yours, madam. But, you know, it's it, that is something that is very apparent, not only um, not only in places like the South or in America, but here in Hawaii, the way that, that Christian teaching has been kind of co-opted and fashioned to serve empire is, I mean, it's well documented, but it is kind of striking to see it happening in our lives right now. So I, I lived in Atlanta uh, for a brief moment and uh my wife and i are both christians and and we were like you know we're gonna try to like fight back against white christianity because there's very much a white christian experience and a black christian experience and we went to a church that was in uh what many would call the inner city uh it's in a largely impoverished neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying so it has a lot of black people who've been there forever and uh, it's it's actually where Martin Luther King lived, and then a lot of white people who are moving in. And what was so weird about it is when you go to the church, uh, the message week after week would be about racial reconciliation, uh, if not explicitly, implicitly. 
but the church didn't actually know how to do it. Like no church knows how to do it because there's never been an equal Christianity. So you would get black people and white people and you would walk in and it was almost like the black side of the room, the right white side of the room. Um, or it would be black, 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 white, white, black, 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 white, 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 black, black. They never, it was never black, white, black, white. People were never, they never intertwined their lives together because Christianity has just, they've never figured out how to do it. Yeah. And even our best attempt right now in an age of more connectedness than ever falls very short because, uh, especially down South, as we've talked about many times on here, black people and white people don't live the same lives. You just don't have, you don't live in the same neighborhoods. You don't drive the same cars. You don't eat at the same restaurants, shop at the same stores. You just have, you don't have anything in common. And that was so deliberate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about you bringing ta Coates here in a few weeks. Um, in his book, Between the World and Me, he verbalized a lot of that. And, and like, that book spoke to me on a very, like, spiritual level because i had never actually been able to to verbalize or even realize that it could be verbalized what was happening Mm. and what had happened and how the structures had been set up and it was such an eye-opener to see him historiographically trace cultural segregation according to uh housing segregation according to economic segregation according to literally back to slavery and how that cycle sort of persisted. Yeah. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with that other than to say that I just feel like you just, you like absolutely knocked it out of the park that Christianity plays a huge role in the perpetual subjugation of people of color, specifically black people. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that that piece you just mentioned about like us living very separate lives. Like I I grew up in Virginia. Um, first generation post-segregation. So a lot of my public school teachers started off teaching in white only schools and were really, really, really struggling with uh, the appearance of all of us military kids who came from, a lot of us came from mixed race backgrounds. Um, We looked really different from the local black community that was there. Like I said, I grew up with like Hawaiian kids and and, um, kids who were like half white, half Okinawan, a lot of them, half Filipino, half white. so we we actually lived in the same neighborhoods, but we had completely different lives. And I, I realized years later, having, having moved away, just how amazing um, culture is in reinforcing that sec- that separation, even when you're in the same space. So my family lived next door to a white family um, that we had a lot of, I mean, eventually we kind of had a detente, but we had a lot of conflict with them. They were very upset that we had moved in next door. We like moved in within two weeks of each other and then lived there most of my growing up. Um, and I am still kind of keep up with them on Facebook and they're super Trump supporters and they hate Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter and all the stuff. They grew up next door to us. You know, they saw us every single day. Their kids played with us. My parents helped them out with whatever was going on. So even with that close relationship and that actual interaction, sustained interaction, there's so much of the way that our society has incentivized that that psychic distance, even when you're actually there with people. And I think that is a really interesting thing that you're sharing about the the church experience where you have this set of values and this kind of moral, this shared moral universe and people still cannot get over that to see the humanity of other people and to advocate for the humanity of other people. I think it's just really striking. So I think, uh, what um, what do you see as, as a way through this, and, you know, read this block. I'm something, you know, speaking of speaking of Dr. King, something that we've been coming back to thinking about 
uh, and you know, letter from a Birmingham jail. It's mm-hmm. and you know, you mentioned Charlottesville. The biggest obstacle is not the uh, the white citizens council or the Nazi or the Klanman. It's the it's the white moderate. It's the fifty three percent of white women who voted for Donald Trump. You know, yeah. so um, I mean, we could uh, let's play a clip for our listeners who may not be familiar with this letter. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. What do we do? You know, how, how do we get through this? Like, how, how can we, how do we move in the right direction? You know, it's, that's an, an interesting question. Um, so we had Patrice Colors here last Thursday and opened up after she shared from her memoir and we had a little bit of a converse, moderated conversation on the stage. We opened it up to questions and that question was the one we got the most. Yeah. And that was also the question that she chose not to answer because um, I think that the answer to that is really complex. We're looking at the kind of accretion of 500 years of, of cultural logic kind of that's all driven us to this moment. And um, I would like to be optimistic and say that there is a path forward, but hundreds of years show us that we're just going to replicate it in a different way unless something radically changes. And I don't know what needs to radically change. I really don't. I, I think you're right. You know, I think it's important for us to kind of point out the the kind of um, the obstacle that moderate white moderates present to us um, and well-meaning white moderates, yeah. you know. Why do they have to protest like that? Why can't they just... Right. I mean, I, I can tell you, like, the work that we're doing at the Popolo Project is pretty, you know, it's not super political. Um, It's really just like, let's tell people stories. Let's give us spaces to practice our cultures in public. Let's talk about some issues that are important to us. I've had a lot of private messages from white colleagues of mine, um, professors, including who have said, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this. This diminishes you as a scholar to identify as black. Screw those people. Yeah, It's happened, you know, and so, and these are people who are well-educated and probably very well-intentioned, but there's something about um, me asserting my humanity in this particular way that makes them very uncomfortable where they would prefer to pretend that I'm not who I actually am in order to to share space with me. So I don't know. I actually don't know what we can do. Um, but I feel like, and you know, back to Coates and between the world and me, one of the things that I really appreciate about that text that he says is that we might not get there. It might not be a place that we can get, but the struggle is worth it. Like it's worth us trying to figure this out, even if we have no idea where we're going it's worth it to try to figure out ways that we can create a more just society and a society that allows all of us to be human and to live as human full lives. He had a really interesting article in the Atlantic, which I feel like is redundant to say when it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, but uh, I think it was called My President Was Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened, I think, I think they right turned into a, He turned into a book, right, of a, 
um, it's a big part of the, his his latest book. We were eight years in power. Yeah, oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, we were eight years in power. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I, I feel like, but he wrote that es- that essay is part of that collection. So that's right. it was mm-hmm. it was fascinating to if you if you've read uh, any of Coates' listeners, you know that um, he sort of has that we may not get there approach, and I think um, he's been criticized in the past for being fatalistic i think um especially by especially by a lot of people who are fans of like afrofuturism and sort of this like new notion of black pride and like Coates wrote really intimately about how his time at howard was sort of like this like promised land thing that he had never experienced especially growing up in a very gritty neighborhood in baltimore um it it's really it's sort of like discouraging, but then also at the same time, he taps into that thing that everybody's feeling, which is like, maybe we will never get to that place. And I think there's something interesting. Coates has also talked about the fact that he's an atheist. And, yeah. you know, we we were just talking about the, the role of Christianity as a cultural force, especially in, in relationships between black and white people. Um, and there's a, there is a very interesting kind of historical arc of of black people um, being indoctrinated into Christianity, yeah, um, but also being encouraged to stay in Christian thought spaces because part of Christianity is this idea of there being it's all worth it somehow. Yeah. Like our suffering is going to pay off. Yeah. And I think what one of the things that is really interesting about Coates situating himself outside of the black Christian tradition is that he has a completely different cosmology. He's thinking yeah. about the world and the universe and history in so many other different ways. So I think it's, I, I, I personally very interested in, um, the way that he's building that because it doesn't say that we shouldn't do anything or that we were all doomed to failure, but it's not clear that that we're promised that things are going to be better. It it actually puts a lot more on us and requires us to be engaged and intentional about That's it. That's kind of what I love about it. Um, you mentioned earlier about how history, like you see these same sort of uh, repetitive cycles. Um, my wife's best high school friend, name drop, is uh, her name is Yad Jassy, and she wrote a book called Homegoing that uh, won zillions of awards, and and mm-hmm. Coates actually wrote the foreword for it. Um, it was her first book ever, which was crazy. Cause she like, oh. she just, we were all like, what are you writing a book for? And she's like, I don't know. I just got the story I want to tell. And then one day she just dropped this book that was like amazing and went on all the talk shows and was New York times bestseller. But she traces, um, she traces like this lineage of two sisters in Ghana who are separated, uh, by time and circumstance. And one of them gets sold into the slave trade and one of them doesn't. And, uh, you sort of see she does a really good job of telling that story that repetitive um sort of duplicative story of what happens throughout the generations of how um people keep telling themselves that they're promised something better and maybe something better will happen and you see throughout the characters because it takes you it gives you like sort of vignettes into different characters and along the lineage how like some of them were uh, faithful in believing that and some of them weren't and ultimately uh, they still suffered the same fate and it was it was a really gut-wrenching read if you yeah. if I've, maybe you've read it if you haven't I've, I've heard of it I haven't read it I, I highly recommend it, it it was a fantastic book probably mm-hmm. one of the best books of one of the best fiction works I've ever read mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's it's really curious to hear somebody say that because again it sort of verbalizes things that you kind of see 
growing up in a highly segregated community, but you don't, especially as a, not a person of color, you don't really know how to say what's going on. It's like sort of like beneath the level that language allows you Mm. to really explore. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hmm. Um, So tell us about the event you have coming up on August 25th. Yes. So our event with Coates is actually part of a larger um, bit of programming that we are doing for the second time. Uh, Last year, we kicked off our Black August observance. So Black August um, is really a month of dedication to political education, physical and mental well-being, um, talking about incarceration that was really started in the 1970s by black activists organizing around the prison system. So um, we were really intentional about about doing that in Honolulu because we see a lot of connections between black liberation struggles and the communities here, Hawaiian communities, working class communities here. And we wanted to create spaces for us to actually be very open about those connections and kind of dig down into it. So um, this year we're doing a lot of a lot of events, um, and people can check them out on our website and on our Facebook. In the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to be talking about climate change. We're going to be talking about incarceration. Um, we're going to be talking about the connection between um, land struggles, like for Mauna Kea and Black land struggles right on. on the continent. Um, thinking about um, what's happening in the rest of the Black Pacific, in the Melanesian part of the Pacific, where there's an enormous amount of seabed uh, mining that's going on in places like Fiji and the Solomon Islands by um, Australian companies that are really devastating the environment there and contributing to climate change. So Coates is actually part of that conversation. And uh, the event on the 25th is an opportunity for us to um, not only sit and talk with Coates about his work, but in particular to connect what he's done over you know the last several years of his career in looking at how blackness and the experiences of of policy especially developed in the Atlantic world impact our experiences in the Pacific. So a lot of the ways that we talk about blackness in in the Pacific here not only for people of African descent but native Pacific Islanders comes from tropes of blackness that were developed in the Atlantic and we are going to be talking to him about you know, his work on Obama over the last several years, Mm. he kind of has wondered if Hawaii created a different kind of black man who was able to become the president. And we want to kind of unpack that a little bit more. Um, But we're also going to be talking about the, that very particular experience of black Pacific Islanders. So kind of um, to frame the conversation with Coates, we're going to be showing uh, a a short film that we've worked on at the Popolo Project along with its double header, along with a really wonderful film um, called Blackbird that was produced by a wonderful filmmaker in Australia named Ami Batalibasi, who is a descendant herself of Solomon Islanders who were kidnapped in 1865, right when emancipation happened in America. And they were taken to Australia to work on sugar plantations when the market shifted. So we want to draw those histories together and think about how the experience of blackness directly impacts the experience the experience of blackness in the atlantic i should say directly impacts the experience of blackness in the pacific and kind of have coats to dialogue with about that right on um that sounds incredible uh i got my tickets this afternoon uh if people want to find out more information buy tickets where can they go they can go to the honolulu museum of art and check out the website for the doris duke theater and all the information will be there awesome so now uh i hate to keep going with like such heavy questions but what do you do for fun? That's a really good question. Um, I like to play music. Okay. What do you play? 
I play a couple of instruments. I play uh, the mandolin. Hey, I like cool. to play traditional Southern music. Okay. I also play the trombone, the tenor trombone. Do you find a lot of occasion to play like trombone? Not enough. Here? Not enough. Yeah. I I used to be in, I was in a band for a short time playing like funk music. I was part Very of the cool. the horn section, but not enough. Not enough. And I sing a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Favorite artist? Oh wow, that's that's too big. Um, We've been asking people to pick one book, one album, one movie. Wow! But that you have to like for the rest of your life. Desert oh, man, the desert island scenario. But wow, uh, I'll pass on that one and just yeah. say favorite artist. Favorite artist. That's really that is really super tough. Um, today I was listening to Hazel Dickens. Do you okay. guys know Hazel Dickens? Nope, not at all. She's a, she's you a, seem way too cool for me. So <laughs> I doubt no, I'm no, no, more I, worldly than we are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how worldly I am, but. Um, she was a folk singer in, um, and I want to say she's from West Virginia. Okay. And she did a lot of singing about unions and about working people. Um, and she sang a lot of, a a lot of really amazing music. And, and I love that music. That's where my folks come from. Um, my dad's side of the family has roots in Appalachia. Um, I grew up listening and playing country music. Um, and it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, we've been talking kind of about race and identity. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize how much, uh, American Indian music is in country music and rock and roll really? and how much of course we kind of know about the African influence sure. with things like the banjo yeah. but so many of those harmonies and that you know if you, if you guys know about bluegrass music and the high lonesome sound actually comes from the way that our native musical systems were set up interesting um, there's a wonderful movie that I can plug um, yeah. that I, I saw do. last Please. year called rumble if your listeners haven't seen that I recommend it um, I think you can stream it online and it's the it's called um, rumble the Indians who rock the world and it's a wonderful documentary about specifically focusing on the Indian black connection in the south um, how American Indians um, greatly influenced and really originated the rock and roll sound and influenced every kind of rock music that you've ever heard. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. The furthest I knew about uh, Indian music and country music was Tim McGraw had a song called Indian Outlaw. <laughs> Tim McGraw. Half Cherokee yeah, and Choctaw. I'm not, I'm not sure that I would endorse that, but there no, are some really, there's some really it's wonderful, a song. <laughs> there's some really wonderful, interesting history there and, and wonderful music in that film. Okay. Um, this is the key question that we ask every single guest. Uh, this is what this is what everybody basically tunes it's the in whole for. Whole shooting match, yeah. <laughs> like uh, everything else you, you said before, uh, brilliant. That's just that's icing on the cake. This is the real meat and potatoes. Okay. I'm, I know I'm mixing. Food no pressure. Here. No pressure. Right. Um, please give us your number one Honolulu or Oahu restaurant recommendation. Oh man, that's a tough one too. And I I have to say I'm I'm way more boring then I should be. Um, I don't do a lot of eating out, actually. Um, but what I could do is, um, I do love to eat, though. Okay. And um, That's good. I do. It's kept me alive so far. Um, I really love, um, so I live uh, not too far from here, and we're in Kaimuki. And um, I really love getting fresh fish from local ia, which I pick up at the Kaimuki Superette. Oh, cool. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll go in there and you know, have a bite. Um, and I also very conveniently am able to pick up vegetables there from Ma'o Farms. Hey, so rather than, than have a restaurant to endorse, I want to endorse getting fresh, local, sustainably caught, ethically sourced fish and vegetables. That's a super solid. That was the most legit answer I think we've had so yeah, far. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> everybody else is so cool. Everybody else is so shallow. I know. 
I'm not even gonna. I don't even eat restaurants anymore. Yeah. I've completely <laughs> changed my mind. Boycotting. Akemi like has totally yeah. changed me right now. Uh, well, Akemi, Dr. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank um, you for having me. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to share? We could plug the we could plug the show one more time. Uh, any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I just love for everybody to check out what we're doing at the Popolo Project. And even though we're focusing on blackness in Hawaii, blackness is big, and everyone is welcome to check out what we're doing. And hopefully we'll see you guys in Black August. Right on. Thank you so much. Dr. Kimmy Glenn, Blue Hawaii Podcast. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii. Blue Hawaii.